Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, November 12th. We begin with a focus on the coronavirus crisis. We get reaction to news earlier this week of great strides being made in the creation of a vaccine, as well as some myth-busting surrounding the virus. We speak with Dr. Lenora Saxinger, infectious disease specialist with the University of Alberta. Next, we look at the increased use of artificial intelligence in the healthcare sector. We hear details of a new study from Guelph University that finds Canadians have trust issues when it comes to the new tech. It's a win for consumers, but a financial hit for independent travel agents. We hear how refunds for travel impacted due to COVID-19 are hurting travel agents. And finally, in what appears to be an unintended consequence of the pandemic, Canadians are more conscious now compared to a year ago about household food waste. We get details on a new survey from the National Zero Waste Council. 709 on the morning news. There's lots to cover with the coronavirus from a so-called promising new vaccine from Pfizer. And more calls for lockdowns from some Alberta doctors. We're joined now by infectious disease specialist out of the University of Alberta, Dr. Lenora Saxinger, to discuss our way forward with COVID-19. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. Well, let's talk about, you know, perhaps some positive news. Very exciting earlier this week to hear Pfizer saying that their coronavirus vaccine uh, might be 90% effective, according to early data. What are your thoughts on, on hearing a stat like that? Oh, my goodness. It's a really, really good light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, there's a considerable tunnel still until the vaccine can actually vaccine and other vaccines that I expect also should have good results based on on this one um, will be available to us. So it's really a matter of negotiating things as safely as possible through to probably about the middle of uh, next year when we would be able to be rolling the vaccine out to to kind of a priority prioritized uh, list of people so higher risk first is probably the way it will go doctor are you concerned at all or should we be concerned in terms of them rushing this vaccine through as we're hearing we hear it from people constantly day after day that i'm not taking that vaccine because it hasn't gone through the same rigorous testing or it's been pushed through too quickly you know, I actually, under, I think it's actually good that people are cautious and thinking about that. But um, there's a few good reasons for why it can be faster. Um, uh, well, starting with some of the manufacturing reasons, some of the vaccines are actually based on vaccines that have been developed for other conditions and have been highly studied already. But they basically swapped off the bit of virus that they're using um, to a bit of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so they were already quite far along in development. And then the retesting was faster. Um, some of them were actually based on the old SARS virus from 2003, for example. Um, and so there was a bit of a leg up on the research. And then the animal studies usually don't take too long. The main bottleneck for vaccines is actually getting enough people um, to get the vaccine, to get the disease, to be able to tell how well it works. And Unfortunately, that's really easy in COVID because COVID has been sweeping the globe so aggressively that something that, you know, to, to get a vaccine for, for zoster took us many, many years to have enough cases to see if the vaccine would work. Mm-hmm. Um, in this, it, it really takes weeks to get enough cases almost in some places. So we, we have really practical reasons why it's gone faster. And there has been attention to make sure that the same safety protocols are being followed. I think the judgment is going to be once it looks safe and effective, Usually there's a bit of a longer time to make sure that a wider group of people don't have any weird, unexpected side effects. And deciding how long that period has to be is, I think, the bigger decision. But I think they're going to try to find a really good balance of safety and getting the vaccine out there to help calm this all down. 
Doctor, let's talk about the other huge news over the past, uh, you know, several days that dozens of Alberta doctors penning a letter to Jason Kenney and the Alberta government asking for what they call the circuit breaker lockdown, a short but sharp two-week lockdown in our province. And now we're hearing news that as early as today or the next couple of days, we might hear of some new restrictions in place. I'm wondering, back to the doctor's note, a two-week lockdown, um, what kind of an impact could that make in the battle against the coronavirus? Well, yeah, that's a good point. It's like the the first step in a battle more than the battle itself. Um, the idea actually comes from some modeling data from the United Kingdom. In England, they've been having a lot of trouble with COVID, like a lot of trouble. And they've been having similar debates about, you know, the danger of lockdown versus the danger of disease. And there's a similar situation with, you know, people disagreeing about those really basic points. And the idea really is that if you can drop transmission really sharply and abruptly, it almost turns back the clock. Um, and you'll have uh, you'll reset your case numbers at a lower level. You would be able to catch up on your contact tracing, which is a huge problem right now. We're flying blind. We don't know where all of the transmission is going on. Um, people are kind of doing their own contact tracing or are meant to, and I'm not sure that that's actually working out as, as we'd hope. And so we have a really difficult situation right now with uh, terrible numbers. We can't track where it's coming from. And our hospitals, like a lot of hospitals here in Edmonton right now, we're running out of ICU beds already, and it's affecting care. So it is a big deal, and so I think the alarm sounding is is legitimate. And the circuit breaker would be a pretty, like the idea with that, it would be a pretty extreme lockdown, at least as extreme as we could negotiate, but it really should help us turn back the clock, get the numbers a little bit easier to manage, and buy some time to, to figure out a way to start having more targeted, um, lightest touch possible type restrictions to keep people safe. You mentioned the ICU bed issue. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, so what if the IC, you just open up another ward or it's not that big of a deal? Because we know we're not trying to get to zero cases. We're just trying to control it so that the ICU and hospitals overall are not overrun, right? So what does that mean if, if the ICU beds are at capacity? Well, I mean, th- there's two problems. One is you can have other rooms that have oxygen and ventilators, but you cannot clone the expertise required to look after those patients. And so it becomes an issue of being able to provide care in other spaces, even if you can make the room. Um, and at the same time, we have more and more staff who due to exposures in the community or at work or on quarantine or ill. Um, and so the, the actual person power is, is probably even a bigger deal than the number of beds, which is like a physical idea. And everyone's like, well, put a bed in the hallway. Well, someone has to look after the people and people can be very, very ill. They require very complex care. And if you don't have ICU capacity, you have to cancel complex surgeries because if they have a complication, there's no place to put them. Um, People coming into eMERGE who are very, very ill might have to get transferred to another hospital very, very ill because there's no capacity for an ICU bed there. And in some cases, people have to make value decisions about who gets to go to the ICU and who doesn't. If you have some critically ill patients at exactly the same time, you don't have time to transfer someone. And, and I'm really concerned that people are going to be facing that kind of decision pretty soon. And, and it's a terrible, terrible position to be in as a healthcare mm-hmm. worker. Dr. Saxinger, we got some uh, questions from the listeners. And here's one. Um, can you ask the expert if there is any part of the flu shot that could trigger a false positive for COVID-19? I've heard that this might be happening. Um, it really, yeah, there's no evidence that that would be a concern. I'd heard that too. I'm not sure where it came from. 
Um, but flu, like the influenza virus is extremely different, um, and we don't pick up any element of influenza on the very, very specific COVID testing. We don't even pick up other coronaviruses on the COVID testing. So it's a very clean test. If it's positive, it, it is very likely that it's truly, truly positive. Um, of course, it can be positive after infection for a while, too. So having a positive test doesn't mean that you are capable of spreading infection. It just means that you've had the coronavirus in your body at some point, um, and that might be new or it might be from an infection a couple of weeks ago. Okay, a uh, qu- uh, question, and then we're going to ask if we can hold you over for another couple of minutes because we've got some more coming in. But, uh, you know, with saying the COVID vaccine could have a 90% success rate, how is that possible when the flu can only protect, say, 30 to 40%? Influenza is a really, really tough virus to get a vaccine against because it keeps on changing its coat. Um, and so we're always playing catch up on it, and it's, it's just slippery. Uh, whereas COVID so far, one of the main outer coat structures of the COVID virus has been pretty conserved, even when the virus is making its little changes as it travels across the globe, as viruses do. That piece has seemed to be very, very stable. And so that's extremely lucky. Um, we're not expecting it to be able to slip out of the currently developed vaccines, at least not for a really long time. And so it's just completely a different virus structure. Well, can we uh, keep you for two more minutes after the commercial, uh, doctor? Yeah, sure. That's great. That is Dr. Lenora Saxinger, infectious disease specialist out of the University of Alberta. Back uh, right after this commercial break with more. 719, we are back with Dr. Lenora Saxinger, associate professor in the Department of Medicine and infectious diseases at the University of Alberta. Thank you for staying with us. Appreciate your time. No problem. Okay, so we've got another uh, thing for you here because we've got rumors flying around that the flu numbers are actually being added to the COVID totals. True or false? Ooh, that was really weird. That's mm-hmm. false. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why anyone would think that. You know, it's interesting to me that right now the measures that we're taking against COVID are working much better against influenza than against COVID. Not every COVID swab is tested for influenza, but we're still doing a fair amount of influenza testing where we test people for all the viruses, and we're finding almost no influenza. So the things we're doing against COVID are really smacking down influenza but not doing that well against COVID, which is an interesting thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's no confusion on the testing and there's no confusion on the reporting. I can, okay. I can actually see the problem data on that. The other myth buster is about masks. And uh, somebody had written online last week that uh, if we're wearing masks and have been since August 1st, then why are the numbers continuing to rise? This is proof to me that masks don't work. You know, it's interesting because we continue to struggle with, and it's scientifically embarrassing how much masks add to protection. I I think that we're all pretty comfortable saying layered protection that includes masks makes a lot of sense. But the degree that masks help is not sure. And I I would say that we don't know where we we would be at if we weren't wearing masks. It could be, like if you look at some jurisdictions in the U.S., we're having pretty high case rates. There are places having easily 10 times higher case rates in the U.S. and they're bringing in their refrigerator trucks as morgues to hospital systems. So it could be worse, and I would tend to say we should probably still work on the masks as well as everything else. But at the end of the day, to get this infection, you have to be in the company of someone who has the infection. And so that's why, you know, we might have to take some more measures about just reducing contact numbers between people because they might not know they're infected mm-hmm. yet. Especially in the, in the household, right? Uh, quick question because we're running out of time, but this one has already come up a few times this morning. Is there any truth to rumors people are getting test results back without ever having taken the COVID test? 
I hadn't heard that one. I know that because it's a text-based notification, if someone wrote the wrong number or entered the wrong number into the system, you could have that result happen potentially. Um, I would have expected they would have had some ways to check, but I would think that would be uh, a glitch that should be looked into if that's true. Right, and we've got one more here, and it's, uh, is there any truth to the rumor that a case of COVID in the future could lead to Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's? You know, that one's an open question. It's clearly a very inflammatory disease, and even people with mild illness can go on to have kind of longer-term symptoms. There was a suspicion that Parkinson's disease increased after the influenza pandemic in 1918. So I would, I would hesitate to say that we know that yet. Um, I don't know. So many great questions, and I know, you know, health officials and disease experts are learning every day, as are the rest of us. So we appreciate you answering a lot of these questions for us. Thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Lenora Saxinger, Associate Prof at the Department of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the University of Alberta. 609 on the morning news. Robot fears and privacy concerns are just a couple of the reasons Canadians are weary of the use of artificial intelligence in our healthcare system. Alison Papricia is an assistant professor at the Institute of Health Policy, Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto, and she joins us now with more. Good morning to you, Alison. Good morning. I'm really pleased to be here with you. Thank you for taking the time. Before we delve deeper into the topic, when we talk about AI within healthcare, can you give us some of the components and uh, what we're talking about exactly? Well, basically, we're talking about computers that can be programmed to function with human-like intelligence. So they can take vast amounts of data and they can learn from observations and they can do things like identify patterns and even predict what's going to happen for some patients. So, Alison, where would we be using that right now within the Canadian healthcare system? Well, there's not a lot of widespread use. I mean, there's a lot of coverage of AI uh, in movies and things, but there's really only a handful of products. You're starting to see it come into things like uh, apps that would monitor your system with more sophistication than would be possible. So they can not just sort of identify when a certain signal goes above a threshold, but really monitor your signals over time and come to understand when a patient, for example, with a heart condition is, is entering a dangerous zone and might need to seek care. Okay. So here's the rub. I mean, these computers can move very quickly through models and, like you say, simulations and kind of gather data and find those patterns. So that could be very helpful, although there is reticence. Why do you think people are reticent to, uh, you know, hand over their information or let their information be used in this manner? Yeah, well, I think there's a few different reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is that there's been some press about you know, bad things that have happened with data in generally. And when people read about things like Cambridge Analytica, it decreases their trust overall. So we really have to prove that we're trustworthy when we're working with health data, which is very you know, sensitive and personal information. Uh, I think the other thing is, especially when it comes to AI, is people want to make sure that humans stay in the loop for all decisions, uh, partly because of the movies, but partly just because we've, we've experienced it firsthand. You know, sometimes computer systems can, can get off and they might not be recommending the right thing for you. So we want to make sure that there's not autonomous decisions being made by computers if we don't have confidence in what they're going to do. 
I was going to say, I bet Hollywood plays a role in here somewhere with some of the movies that, that are out there of, uh, you know, uh, computers or robots coming to life and taking over. But, but hacking, I guess, is another issue, isn't it? Where, you know, we have concerns about people being able to get into these computer systems and, and get our information when they shouldn't be able to. Yeah, that comes up. I mean, we've done a number of studies and people will reference things like, for example, CRA being hacked and they'll say, you know, well, we appreciate your taking efforts. If CRA can be hacked, you know, maybe you can be hacked too. So there's this concept of privacy by design where right from the start, you make sure that identifying information is removed and then you have a number of other things between physical controls and training and limiting the number of people that can see any detail that would allow for re-identification that really uh, makes sure that even if there is an unlikely event that there is a hacking, that what's exposed uh, doesn't uh, pose risk to the individuals who provide the data. So I guess to a certain extent, Alison, it could be a case of the nature of this information you need to fully disclose, and, the, and these computers and these healthcare professionals inputting it would need a lot of information. So it's kind of an all-or-nothing thing, isn't it? Well, it's not quite all or nothing, but you're certainly right to say that the more data we have, the more we can learn. There's always a risk that if you're just studying a small group, you identify some pattern or prediction that's that's true for that small group, but wouldn't extend to others. So we really think it's important to do things like this interview and get the word out there to members of the public so we've got transparency about what's happening and what we can learn about, you know, the uses of data that they support and the ones that they don't support too. So are, are, are there uses of AI that we have available to us now, say, in Canada for our healthcare system, but we're just not using it because we as citizens aren't happy about the idea? Uh, so I have to say not to my knowledge. Um, and I, I would also say, though, I work more on the research side as okay. opposed to the application side. But certainly, you know, it's starting to work its way in. You, you may have heard of computer vision applications, and those are uh, being applied in things like um, radiology and ophthalmology. Uh, and, and often when AI is used, at, at least to start, it's more as like a preliminary scan, for example. Um, so uh, the, the AI might look at a, a medical image and flag for a doctor uh, or a radiologist that they need to go in and have a look at a particular area as opposed to the AI actually making the decision. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it's sort of operating at that space, but more and more it's coming. You know, we have AI and things like Netflix and Spotify and, you know, getting really good ads in front of us. And of course, we want the benefits to be seen in the healthcare sector too. It's just that we need to be cautious about how we implement it. I'm wondering, is this something that is disclosed to a patient who uh, might be um, having their information used? Or is this something that I wouldn't even know if I went to see the doctor? Uh, would it be crystal clear that I'm uh, being in the AI system? Yeah, well, th this is where, um, again, there, there's variation and a reason for being um, on, on a radio show like this. Sometimes AI studies make use of large, unconsented data sets. And that's actually, you know, something that we have in Canada that are an asset that we can really learn a lot from because we have our single-payer health system. So everyone in Alberta will have their data, you know, in one data set identifying information removed. We can learn a lot from that. And that kind of research is is completely legal. There are special laws that allow it. And it's published, but the public doesn't always appreciate that they're part of those studies because it's not like a clinical trial where you know the research team, your approach, you know, you sign a paper, you get, for example, an experimental drug. It's all happening in the background. But certainly the idea of, um, you know, patient comfort, full transparency, those are, those are really, really 
big themes as we start to implement AI in healthcare. So from your research, what would you say even, you know, one or two things where if we implemented more AI, it would make things that much more efficient, that much better for the patient care? Well, well, certainly the computer vision applications are leading the way. You may know that a lot of the science of AI started with uh, using computers to distinguish things like cats and dogs in photos, so that the science is is quite robust, and and it could help eliminate a lot of sort of tedious first review of images. I'm also very interested in using AI in cases where there's just so much data, you wouldn't really count on a human being able to pick up and analyze the signals real time. So for example, in the ICU, where you can imagine a patient hooked up to multiple machines, unless a nurse or a doctor is in the room and notices sort of signals coalescing together, they may not realize that something like a heart attack in a in a neonatal intensive care unit is likely. So those kinds of applications where we know we've got data and we're looking for the the processing uh, real time or processing of information that would otherwise be routine to to get us uh, insights faster than a human could. Okay. Allison, very interesting uh, subject matter. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your time this morning. Well, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's Allison Papricia, Assistant Professor, Institute for Health Policy, Management and Evaluation, University of Toronto. Over the past few weeks, WestJet and WestJet's vacations announcing refunding cancelled tickets. And that's meant relief for a lot of travellers. But as much as this is a good move for some, it's a difficult one for some travel agents. Joining us to explain is Beth Beyer, independent consultant with Tier 1 Travel. Hi, Beth. Hi, Sue. Hi, Andrew. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so explain, because I know there are a lot of people saying, you know, we just wanted our money back, not a credit from WestJet. So that's going to happen in some cases, but bad news for you and and folks in your industry. So just to be clear, we are, as agents, we're thrilled that um, WestJet has made this announcement. It has been an ongoing battle, I'd say, for many of us and for our clients um, who deserve to have their money refunded. With this news um, that they're getting their money back, we're so thrilled um, but it does affect us with these refunds. Um, if tickets or vacations have been issued through an agent, WestJet will come back to the agent before they refund the client's money and they will ask us for a commission recall. So that means money that we had earned perhaps six, eight, twelve months ago, we must now send that back to WestJet before they'll refund the client. Wow. So this is something that has always been practiced. I I would think, Beth, if you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, but in the past, if it was a couple of refunds here and there, that's one thing, but this could be hundreds of refunds that are impacting agents. I mean, it could be thousands of dollars, but there are parameters around which they are refunding clients. So that's the good news for us. It isn't as bad as it initially initially sounded, but we still will be, you know, having to give this money back. Which is difficult during a difficult time where people are not booking holidays and, and you don't have the Absolutely. money coming in. And as you pointed out when, you know, we talked about this off air is, you know, imagine being told by your employer that you have to pay back wages or a salary that you earned a year ago. That, that can be tough, tough for a lot of people in the circumstances that we're in right now. Absolutely. And that's money that many of us have already, you know, used to pay bills, that sort of thing. And we are still working 
just to be clear on that, we're still servicing clients. We're still Mm -hmm. managing future travel vouchers. We're still dealing with insurance claims. So we're still wading our way through um, the travel process all while not earning an income. So this is still, you know, it's like a double whammy sort of thing. So this, you know, this latest thing with WestJet's not the only thing that's impacted us. Probably about a month ago, Transat um, pulled out of the West, so they aren't offering any direct flights Mm -hmm. to the Sun destinations. And many agents had weddings booked for, you know, early 21. And so you're paying those back too? And and we're also paying those back. Wow. And it can be a little overwhelming, that's for sure. It's a tough time for you, for your industry. We appreciate you sharing your story this morning, Beth. And I just want you to um, know that we are in the process of meeting with as many MPs as we can um, reach. Um, we've had uh, Zoom meetings with close to 70, um, 70 of them at this point, and we'll mm-hmm. continue um, bringing awareness to them around that, as well as things that are, you know, we need in our industry to sort of get um, travel and tourism back up and running again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks uh, so much for your time this morning, Beth. Thank you guys very much. That is Beth Beyer, independent consultant, Tier 1 Travel. 909 on the morning news. If you're feeling more conscious about your food waste these days, then you're not alone. A new survey from the National Zero Waste Council shows 94% of Canadians feel motivated to reduce throwing out their leftovers. Joining us now with more on the survey is Joanne Gauchi, campaign manager for Love Food, Hate Waste Canada, and senior policy advisor with the National Zero Waste Council. Good morning to you, Joanne. Good morning. The 94% sounds very impressive. It's a huge number, but if you can put us... Put it into terms of, as far as the actual waste is concerned. If you can give us uh, an example of a normal year, a non-COVID year, how much food is wasted in Canada compared to this year so far? Yeah, absolutely. I can do that. Um, I think typically we, when we're talking about food waste, we tend to, to think about where food waste is happening in restaurants and grocery stores. But food waste in the home is often overlooked. And really the whole focus of Love Food Hate Waste is to get consumers and citizens thinking about the role that they can play. Um, To give you a little bit of a sense, what we estimate is food in the home, um, about 63% of what you're throwing out could at one point have been eaten. So that's not the banana peels or the eggshells. That's really the food that sat on the counter too long, the moldy bread. Um, So really there's a lot of scope to do things differently. In a normal year, that's about 1.2 million apples a day, just to give you a sense. And overall, it's 2.2 million tons of edible food that's going uh, into the garbage or into organics. Wow. Joanne, are we wasting more now during COVID, though, even though we might be more aware of it? Because I would assume we're, we're eating at home more, so we're shopping more and buying more. Is that going to waste? So that's a good question. We didn't look specifically at how much um, Canadians were throwing away in the home. We asked them if they thought uh, they were seeing reductions. Mm -hmm. And the positive piece is that uh, most of them are thinking about this in new and different ways. So they're trying different food saving strategies. And of those that we surveyed, um, 24% felt that they were throwing out less than they were before COVID. So that's a positive sign in the right direction. So this could be, a, a, you know, a, a positive 
result of the pandemic, uh, but also you look at the number of people who are isolated or had to work from home. Could it be also the impact that they're trying to just stretch the food more? Because uh, particularly when your study was done in June, earlier in the pandemic, people were unaware of the availability? Absolutely. I think it's it's fairly you know safe to say that our habits have been changing a lot and that that's probably going to continue for quite a while. Um, and what we found is that they were really interested and open and mindful of the food that was coming into the home, of the motivators that people referenced. Um, saving money was absolutely the number one factor or driver, followed by really wanting to do the right thing, both for the environment, but also for social reasons. So it's very top of mind for Canadians right now, and that's a, it's a positive thing overall. Joanne, you talked about some of those food-saving habits that Canadians are starting to get into. Can you share a couple of those with us so the rest of us can get better at it too? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think this will differ by household. You know, if you're living alone or if you're a busy family with two kids um, or you're a student, it's all going to be different. What we did see an uptick in was people were shopping more often with a list. They were thinking about how to store that food correctly so that it lasts longer um, and really trying to use up their leftovers. So again, these are all positive signs and they get to what we think are the three big habits, which is we often waste food because we buy too much, we store it incorrectly, or we don't use it up in time. How about the uh, doing the opposite? And I've heard the term shop your cupboard before, and that would be creating a recipe based on what's in the cupboard versus buying those items uh, based on a recipe. Yeah, that's a great suggestion and um, certainly very relevant, I think, for right now as we go into the fall. I think a lot of us have pantry items that we were perhaps buying more of through the spring and summer. So it's a good time to do a little bit of an audit, um, see what you have in the pantry, see what you have in your freezer, try to use that food up a little bit more. Um, and really just take stock of where your weak points might be throughout the week. So again, this might be different uh, depending on, on just your activities as a family, but lots of opportunities to do something different. And we always say try by starting to do just one thing differently. I love the uh, the website, lovefoodhatewaste.ca. Lots of great tips and tricks there yes. and lots of interesting stats too. Yes, absolutely. And certainly if you go there, you'll find tips from some of Canada's top chefs, as well as tips from fellow Canadians. Um, you can also go in and share your own tips online and sign up to get some of those tips delivered right to your inbox as well. Joanne, was this there... is all about sharing ideas and, and thinking of things differently. Joanne, was there a bit of a blip or a bump when... Uh you know, widespread composting was introduced across the nation. I know that in Calgary, for example, it's only been really a few short years. And I personally don't feel as bad discarding food if I know it's going into the compost mm -hmm. and not into the landfill. Uh, but in the end, uh, you would still, with your organization, consider that food waste, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's a good point to raise. Certainly, it's much better that that food is going into the compost and being properly managed, but it's much better to prevent that food waste in the first place. And I think this is just about, um, you know, being a little bit more mindful of, of your habits and what you're throwing out and trying to reduce the amount that you're composting overall. That's the best bet. Being mindful, being aware, great place to start. Thanks so much, Joanna. I'm going to be far more conscious about it now.
<laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. That is Joanne Gauchi, Campaign Manager for Love Food Hate Waste Canada, Senior Policy Advisor with the National Zero Waste Council. And again, that website is lovefoodhatewaste.ca for lots of great tips and tricks. I'm going to say something that might be sacrilege to those who just thrive and live off the fresh vegetables. Mm-hmm. Well, if you do, chances are you, you, you know, not wasting much. Don't but tell I know me canned. I was, I was canned or frozen. They talk about a lot when you talk about dietitians and, and those in the, you know, food sciences. Mm-hmm. Frozen for sure. Yeah, that it locks in the vegetables. Yep. And then the other part of it is it's not going to be going bad because that's what happens to me. Sometimes it feels like either the counter or the uh, uh, fridge, for example, is like a time machine and things just, you take them home, <laughs> you take so, them out of the grocery bag and it's, it's like, so true. how did this go bad? Well, I bought it 10 days ago. <laughs> so, you know, I, I know it's it's different, but, you know, having having said that versus seeing that in the landfill or in the compost, I think that could be something, a bit of a change of a mindset. And it sounds like, you know, to Joanne's point, it's just being a little bit more cognizant and in the know and, and being more selective and purposeful when you're shopping. Got a text in. Be nice if fresh veggies like spring mixes and such could be packaged smaller. We waste Ooh. a lot of that type of item because you can't eat as much as is there in the package. Sometimes I think you're very right. Sometimes it's just packaged too big. We need more of the uh, the smaller individual packages perhaps, and that might help with the waste as well. Great point.